All right, I have a confession uh, to give you guys, and this seems like the appropriate time to do it. Um, I have never kept a New Year's resolution in my life, ever. Um, as, I don't know how long I've been doing it. It probably started when I was a kid, just because other people were doing it. And, uh, you know, I remember as a kid having trouble. And so as I got older, I thought, you know, maybe I'll add more resolutions. I'll have like 10 resolutions. That way the chances of success would, would go up, right, you would think. Uh, but no, I still have never uh, have never kept one. Last year, in 2011, I resolved I, I'm going to read 40 books in 2011. And of course, I did not make the 40 book uh, goal. Um, I read a lot of books, but didn't quite hit 40. So last night, I was uh, talking to Shalane, my wife, and I said, you know, think, I think in 2012, I'm going to try to read 52 books. <laughs> and Shalane said, you couldn't read 40. What makes you think you can read 52? That's a very good question, Shalane. Um, so what is, what is wrong with me that makes me think I, I attempt something and I fail and then I think well I'll just up the ante I'll just try for more next time um, I'm not sure you know what is it in me that, that makes me think uh, that after failing at this I can do more the next time what, well what is wrong with me and what could very well possibly be wrong with you as well um, is that I put way too much faith in myself in my own abilities in my own uh, strength Every day I wake up, and despite what I know to be true in the past, every day I wake up trusting in myself, having faith in myself, that I can, whatever comes across my way, I can get it done. I can, I can do, uh, I can propel myself through these situations. I can read 52 books in one year. Um, despite having mountains of evidence to the contrary, I still trust myself every day. Um, and sometimes our default setting, I think, is, is to focus on our own ability, our own strength, before anything else. We have this pull ourselves up by our bootstraps mentality, and that's good, and a lot of that's good to, to be a hard worker. It's good to have that, but it's dangerous when we try to take that sometimes and apply it to our spiritual life, apply it to Christianity. Um, we see in today's passage why that's a dangerous way to live. We're going to see, we have three points. The first two are two problems. Um, that come from focusing on our own ability and strength. And the third point is going to be the solution. So problem number one, trusting in ourselves doesn't work with Jesus. It just doesn't work. Uh, that's, a, that's a big problem. So let's look at the scene here. What is the scene? We have the rich young ruler. He comes, he approaches Jesus. He seems to be a very sincere young man, right? He runs up, he kneels, um, he calls Jesus good. He's very respectful to Jesus. Now, what is it that he wants? What is it that he's asking for? He comes to know what he must do to inherit eternal life. In other words, you know, what do I need to do to be in good with God, to get to heaven, to be a Christian? What do I need to do? And now, just imagine for a moment this, what this man's life is probably like. He's a rich young ruler. He, he probably, in these days, to be rich means you owned a lot of stuff. You owned a lot of land. You owned a lot of cattle, a lot of animals. So he owns a lot of things. Um, he's... One commentator I read, Luke, by the way, tells us that he's a ruler. That's where we get the ruler from, from Luke's account of this. Uh, this story appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So Luke tells us that he's, he's, a, he's a ruler. All three of them tell us that he's very rich. Um, one commentator believes that he, even though he's young, he's probably a, a leader in his local synagogue. Um, he, he's, he's a man who's respected, a man who has power, he has means. A man who's probably used to getting the things that he wants, right? You can imagine him going to buy a piece of property or something, right? And he says, okay, what's the bottom line? What's it going to take to get this piece of property? You know, and he has the powers and the power and the means to, to get uh, the things that he wants. Perhaps he, this is how he approaches Jesus. He expects 
He comes to Jesus, okay, Jesus, you're a good teacher. What do I need to do to inherit eternal, to inherit eternal life? What do I need to do? Just tell me. What's, just you know, give me a command or maybe confirm that I'm already headed the right direction. Just tell me what it's going to take. What's it going to take to get there? And as we see pretty quickly, this is kind of a strange conversation. And if you read commentaries on this passage, there's a lot of disagreements about what exactly Jesus is doing here. Jesus says some things that seem kind of strange uh, at times. And so from the, from the beginning, the rich young ruler approaches Jesus and calls him a good teacher. And this is how Jesus responds. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Uh, this is the first of several confusing statements that Jesus makes. What, you know, what, is, what is Jesus really doing here? For, for the sake of time, let me just say, I think what Jesus is doing here is he's challenging this young man's view of goodness. How he defines goodness. Um, he's defining goodness the way that the Pharisees do, based on external appearances. Now, so he's chosen to seek answers from the right person, Jesus. He's gone to the right person, but he's gone for the wrong reason. He's not gone to Jesus because he thinks that Jesus is God. He's gone to Jesus because he thinks um, he's outwardly living a perfect life, like the Pharisees. And so he wants to, uh, he wants to get Jesus' um, answer to this question. Now look at Jesus' response. This is also kind of interesting. Jesus responds in verse uh, 19 there. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Um, so you can see how this passage might be another confusing point. So is Jesus saying that you know, if you just keep the commandments that uh, you go to heaven? Isn't that, isn't that you know, salvation by works? Isn't that not what we believe? Uh, well, Jesus is not teaching that. The, the way to understand this passage is that all of Jesus' statements are very specifically tailored to the rich young ruler. Um, Jesus knows, even as this man approaches, he knows this man. He knows what's in his heart. He knows who he is. And so all of his responses are very tailored to him and aimed at him. And, so, and also, Jesus' answer is, is technically correct. Um, if you kept all the commandments and were perfect, you would, you would inherit eternal life. That's true. The trouble is, we're sinful. We're sinners. We can't keep the commandments. We can't keep the laws. Uh, and that's, what, that's where our problem is. That's where the problem comes in. Now, in this, in this particular day and age, um, in the first century um, Israel, it was common for the Hebrew boys to be, they were expected to learn uh, to begin keeping the commandments, keeping the law at the age of 12. And so we see the rich young ruler confirms this whenever Jesus says, hey, you know what the commandments are. Um, he lists some of the Ten Commandments, and uh, the rich young ruler responds, Teacher, all of these I have kept since my youth. You know, I've been, I've been keeping these since I, was, since I was a kid, right? And what's really astonishing about this passage is here's this rich young ruler saying, I've kept these commandments, I haven't broken the commandments, uh, clearly defining obedience like the Pharisees do. And astonishingly, Jesus doesn't correct him. Jesus doesn't call him on it and say, hey, hey, wait a second. No, 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 that's, you haven't done that. Jesus doesn't do that. Obviously, we know the rich young ruler hasn't kept these commandments, but Jesus doesn't object. Instead, we see another strange thing here. Look at verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Here he is telling Jesus, I've kept all the commandments. I'm, I'm good. You know, I, I have all these commandments. You just saw, I've, I've done that. I've done that. What else? What else is there? And Jesus looks at this young man and loves him. And so then Jesus gives him what he's been asking for. He's been asking for something to do. 
Give me something to do. What is it that I must do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, okay, I will tell you something to do. We see that in verse 21. Jesus says to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. This is not something that the rich young ruler can buy. This is not something he can negotiate. This is not something he can just try harder at or work harder at. This, this is giving up his way of life. This is giving up all that he knows. His, his personal strength, his, his own ability to negotiate, his power, his means, means nothing right now. It has utterly failed him. He leaves in despair, as we see in verse 22. He leaves in despair because he has many possessions, and he, he loves those possessions. He can't bear the idea of parting with them. This is not what he was expecting not what he was wanting. We see verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And so now the rich young ruler sort of leaves our story um, and, and the disciples step in. Let's look at the disciples' reaction. They've been watching this scene unfold. Let's look at their reaction in verses 23 through 26. And Jesus looks around and said to his disciples, you can imagine... You can imagine their astonishment at what watching this unfold. And so he's looking around at the faces of his disciples who are shocked at what they've just seen. And here's what Jesus says to them. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? The disciples are amazed. They're shocked. Another translation of this word is, is terrified. Um, their, their world has just been rocked by the, watching this and by hearing what Jesus has said. Because you see, in the Old Testament, and even in the first century, there was this belief that material possessions, wealth, was equivalent to God's blessing. So if you have a lot of stuff... If, if you have a lot of land, have a lot of things, then God uh, have, must really like you a lot. He's, he's, you, are, you are receiving God's blessings. Uh, think back, actually, to the book of Job. We see this in Job. Job is rich. He has lots of stuff. When he loses everything, what do his friends immediately assume? Well, you've done something wrong. You've committed some sin, and God no longer, you know, God no longer approves of you. And so that's why he stripped you of your wealth. And so his friends spend all this time trying to get Job to confess to, to some sin that he's committed um, because they believe that riches equals God's blessing. So here comes the rich young ruler. In the disciples' eyes, he's surely a recipient of God's blessing, and yet he leaves in despair. If he can't be in God's kingdom, then who can, they ask? Now, there have been many attempts over the years to, to deal with this camel in the eye of the needle Situation we have here. Um, one solution, one people, a lot of people have redefined the word camel and said, well, it really was referring to a type of material, a type of thread, you know. Um, and some people have tried to sort of redefine uh, what the eye of the needle refers to, saying, well, it really refers to this like gate in the wall of Jerusalem. Um, but to try to, to, try to re- explain away this hyperbole sort of misses the point, I think. Um, what Jesus is re- talking about here is a literal camel and a literal eye of a literal needle, okay? Um, Because he's saying, the the point is that it's impossible, okay? That's the point Jesus is making. 
He says, Jesus is saying, it is easier for this incredibly impossible thing to happen than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because there is so much, such a great, greater temptation for rich people to trust in themselves, to trust in their stuff, to trust in their own abilities and their own power, their own means to save themselves. Uh, and now just, you know, just in case you might be sitting here saying, well, I'm glad I'm not rich. You know, I'm glad I don't have to worry about that. Well, let me just remind you that everyone in this room right now, if you look at the history of the world, we are in the richest 1% of people that have ever lived in the history of the world. So, so this is us. Let's don't, let's don't try to put ourselves out of this box, okay? We, we are rich. Um, and so it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for you and for me to enter God's kingdom through our own efforts, through our own ability, through our own strength. And yet we are tempted to, to do that every day. We're tempted to trust ourselves every single day. Look at verse uh, 27. To respond uh, to the disciples' question, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. This is the main point of this passage. It's one of the main points of the Bible. That with man alone, salvation is impossible. Trusting yourself will not work. But with God, all things are possible, including taking dirty sinners like us and making them clean. And making them beautiful and making them holy. Um, God can even do that. God is in the business of saving sinners, but sinners are not able and never will be able to save themselves. So trusting ourselves uh, in, in a lot of areas of life it might seem like the most natural thing to do, but when it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to Jesus, um, it, it just won't work. Uh, we end up walking away in sorrow like the rich young ruler. So that's the first problem. The second problem is this. Trusting in ourselves will lead us to pride or despair. Let's look at pride first. If, we, if we're trusting in ourselves, if we're trusting in our own abilities, okay, to, uh, in the Christian life, to, in spiritual things, you know, if, if things are going well, we feel pretty good, right? If we're, if we're doing well, we feel, pretty, we feel pretty happy, we feel pretty content, pretty self-assured. Um, but it's all misplaced. Our confidence is not in something sturdy and steady. Our confidence is in ourselves, and so we, we at, the, at the same time, we feel somewhat confident. We also feel insecure because we know at any moment we could, we could make the wrong move and, and all of this could be over. Consider how the rich young ruler approaches Jesus. He comes with pride. He believes that he has kept all the commandments. He believes that he has done all that is necessary. And so he kind of comes to Jesus perhaps looking for some confirmation. Hey, what, what else is there to do? What else do I need to do? I've already kept all these laws and... Um, just want to know if there's anything, if there's a law I've forgotten or missed. Um, but he, 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 he can't see the truth because of his pride. He can't see that he doesn't understand who Jesus really is because of his pride. He doesn't really understand what true biblical goodness looks like and what it's about. He doesn't really understand the reality of his sin in light of the law. He doesn't see how he falls short of these commandments. He thinks he's obeyed them all. And look how far his pride has, has pushed him away from the kingdom of God. And he's not alone here. I think we can see it, it, a little pride starting to creep in Peter even um, in this passage. Look at, verse, uh, look at verse 28. After watching the scene and hearing Jesus talk, Peter, um, often one to speak first, uh, says this. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. 
I like that it says Peter began to say. It's almost as if Peter, Peter starts to talk and, and Jesus says, let me stop you right there. You know, kind of cuts him off. Um, because what Peter is, is pointing out is that, hey, this thing you just told him to do, you said sell everything and leave everything and come follow me. Hey, we've already done that. You remember in, in the Gospels, Peter and Andrew and James and John, they're out of their fishing boats, right? And Jesus says, come follow me. They leave their fishing boats. They leave their careers. They leave their jobs. And they come and follow Jesus. And he says, hey, this thing that you just told him to do to inherit eternal life, we've already done that. We've, we've done that thing. We've left everything to follow you. And Jesus sort of cuts him off and responds with this. Basically, to paraphrase, anyone who has sacrificed things for Jesus and things for the gospel will be repaid 100-fold, 100 times in this life and in the life to come. In other words, there is no room for boasting in God's kingdom. Uh, if you've sacrificed a lot for, for God, some, some people in this world have even gone as far as sacrificing their own lives for God, for the gospel. You still get the better deal. Because at the end of the day, when all the accounts are tallied, when everything is taken account, in account, you'll still have 100 times all that you sacrificed, all that you gave away. So what is there to be boastful about? We, we shouldn't take our list of accomplishments to Jesus and, and expect him to be impressed. He's still giving us way, way more than we will ever or could ever give him. Because Christianity, you see, is more about what Jesus has given to us, what he has done for us, than what we have done for him. Trusting ourselves leads to pride, but it, it could also lead to despair. Um, if you're trusting in yourself, trusting in your own ability, your own strength, and things aren't going well, you know, if you're, if you're not performing well, if you're not uh, living well, if you, don't, you feel miserable about it. Look at the rich young ruler when he leaves. He's been given a command that he can't keep, and he leaves disheartened and in sorrow because he knows he can't do this. He, he believes that his righteousness depends on what he does, and yet he thought he was doing so good, he was happy, he was full of pride, and now when he sees that he, he can't live up to this standard, he's sorrowful, he's depressed, he can't perform adequately, he can't do what he thinks he is necessary, he can't earn eternal life, and it destroys him. There's a, there's a heartbreaking example of this principle of good of works, sort of works righteousness leading to despair. There's a heartbreaking example if we look at the state of Utah. Um, Utah is almost, uh, it's less than three million people live in Utah. Um, about two-thirds of Utah is, is, are, are Mormons. Um, people are Mormons. And Mormonism is a sort of a religious cult that it tries to associate itself with Christianity. It uses a lot of the same terminology and lingo, but if you explore it a little bit, they everything is sort of redefined. They mean completely different things than what we mean uh, when we talk about Jesus and we talk about stuff. Also, Mormonism is, is heavily works-based, very much works-righteousness-driven. You know, work hard to earn God's love, to earn his approval, uh, perform well, you'll inherit eternal life. Actually, the rich young ruler would have loved to have posed this question to a Mormon because they would have said, oh, you, you want to know what to do to inherit eternal life? Well, here's this long list. I'm glad you asked. Um, and so Utah is unique because there's so much of this presence sort of in the state. I mean, it's really sort of seeped into kind of to the way that the culture of, of the state. Um, and how does this affect people? Well, it has contributed to giving them um, a, what can only be called a suicide epidemic in Utah. Um, Utah 
leads the nation in suicides among men aged 15 to 24. Here's a couple other statistics. Suicide is the leading cause of injury-related death and the third leading cause of hospitalizations for all ages in Utah from 2008 to 2009. So the third highest reason that people were hospitalized between 2008 and 2010 um, in Utah was for suicide attempts. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for teenagers. Um, there, on average, on average, two Utah teens are treated, and that's just ages 15 to 19. Two Utah teens, ages 15 to 19, are treated in the emergency room because of suicide attempts every day. Two teenagers, 15 to 19, attempt suicide and fail every single day in Utah. Um, if you look at that same statistic, but the ages 20 to 64, it's eight. Eight people a day between the ages of 20 and 64 attempt suicide and fail and are sent to the emergency room. If that is not despair, I don't know what is. I mean, if you, you can look this up online. I mean, they've, it's been, for the last decade, it has been, there's been do, they've been doing research and been trying to, you know, sort of do a lot of suicide prevention work in Utah. Because trusting in yourself, trusting, leaving in a good work, sort of a works righteousness religion and constantly coming up short will lead you to despair. It will lead you to uh, depression. Trusting in yourself for salvation, relying on your own strength, your ability will lead you to one of two places, and usually you just bounce back between the two, pride and despair, and usually you're just sort of flip-flopping between both of those. Some of us here today are perhaps filled with pride about our, our spiritual accomplishments. Things are going well, we feel pretty good, we aren't thinking too much about God's grace because we don't really feel like we need it. Uh, others of us here today may have messed up this week, um, and are feeling in despair, are feeling spiritual depression. We aren't thinking about God's love because we think we are, we're too messed up, we're too sinful to even get it. But either way, we're misunderstanding the message of the gospel, which is that Jesus loves and dies for sinners. Whether you're full of pride or full of despair, your problem is the same. You're looking too much at yourself. You're looking too much at yourself and at what you're doing. Which brings us to the solution, point three. The solution is to focus the heart on Jesus. Um, last week was Christmas, obviously. Um, I feel like every time I'm up here, I'm talking about cartoons or something. Um, so <laughs> I'm not going to let that go this time. Um, so last week, uh, you know, we watched, I caught on TV, I think I was at my parents' house, we watched um, How the Grinch Stole Christmas or something. It was on television. Um, the old cartoon version, by the way, not this new live action movie, this newfangled movie. We don't want that. Um, but the old cartoon, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, Chuck Jones' cartoon. And uh, it's a great, it's a great little cartoon. But, uh, you know, I, I was, had this sermon on my mind when I was watching it, and so something occurred to me. At the beginning, the narrator is trying to figure out why does the Grinch begrudge the good who's of Whoville their Christmas? You know, why does he hate Christmas so much? And he speculates, is it, is it because his shoes are too tight? Is it because his head is not screwed on just right? Um, and the answer is no. Actually, the problem, the narrator says, is his heart. His heart is two sizes too small. And uh, that's why he hates Christmas. And that's why he behaves the way he does. And there's, there's it's this kind of a profound uh, tr- biblical truth hiding here in How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Because the Grinch's heart is messed up. And that's why he does evil. Okay, He hates Christmas. He does evil because his heart is messed up. But at the end of the little show, what finally makes him stop doing evil? What finally changes him? Um, it's his heart. When his heart changes, then the way he behaves, the way he acts changes. His, if you recall the end, he hears 
the people of Whoville, they have no Christmas presents. He hears them singing anyways, and it, it makes his heart grow three sizes. And then he, it changes him. Once his heart is changed, it changes him. Perhaps you've heard uh, the saying, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. You've, you've probably heard that, seen it on a t-shirt or something. Um, and it's, it, in my opinion, it got a little cheesy maybe, but, but there's, there's, some good, there's some good truth to that, right? <clears throat> Christianity is really not a religion. Religion is all about how we do good works to improve ourselves, to make ourselves you know, worthy of God, to make ourselves, to earn God's approval, to make ourselves beautiful to Him, right? To make ourselves acceptable to Him. Christianity is the exact opposite of that. Christianity is all about how we aren't acceptable to God. We, we can't earn his approval. And so God had to put on flesh, come to earth, become a man, and to die. To die for sinners like us. We weren't lovely, so Jesus had to make us lovely. That's what Christianity is all about. Christ, religions are all about what you do. Christianity is about what Jesus has done. Christianity is about the heart. It's about changes in the heart. <clears throat> Here's a, here's a verse from Matthew fifteen eighteen. Jesus says, but, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. So just like in sort of the Grinch Still Christmas, what you do and what you say uh, is a reflection of your heart. The heart is what, is what affects how you behave, how you act, how you live. So religion says, change your outward behavior, and that will make you a good person. But the problem is you still have this wicked heart inside you. Christianity says, when Jesus changes your heart then you'll be a good person. Then you'll live better. Then you will act and behave better. Then you will speak better because your heart will be changed. And so the problem with the rich young ruler here is his heart. That's what the problem is. Let's look um, at verse 21 again. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, excuse me, you like one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Now, at first glance, this is sort of a shocking request, right? Because, you know, Jesus saying, sell everything you own and give it away to the poor. I mean, that, this is sort of, and follow me, this is shocking. But what Jesus is actually saying here is much more shocking than that. Because what Jesus is essentially saying is, that thing in your life that you love more than anything, yeah, you have to love me more than you love that. Uh, because, like I said, all of Jesus' comments here are very tailored to the rich young ruler. If, if this conversation was, if we were in this spot instead of the rich young ruler, the conversation would have sounded differently. It would have been something else. But Jesus is saying, you have to love me more than you love those idols in your heart that you've built, that you love to worship. You have to destroy those and replace them with me. You see, selling all that you have and giving it away to the poor, that's actually much easier than what Jesus is asking for here. Because that only costs you your possessions. But Jesus is saying, I want all of you. I want your heart. I want your soul. I want your mind. I want your strength. That's what, that's what Jesus is, is demanding here. Trusting in our own power to keep a few commandments is not enough. We must uh, focus on Jesus with our heart. We must give him our heart. We must love him more than we love everything else. And so here, I mean, I can't think of a better time for us to think about this than here at the beginning of a new year, you know, to think about, to ask ourselves, what is it that I love most today? What is it that I love most right now? It's going to be different for all of us. Um, you know, for some of us, it might be our money and our stuff. For some of us, it might be our career. It might be our family. It might be our reputation. It might be our dreams of success. But Jesus is saying, you must trade that in and follow me. But here's the good news. Jesus says in this passage that 
everything that you walk away from, everything that you give up, everything you sacrifice for Jesus, for the gospel, he will give you 100 times that much, 100 times better than what you have walked away from. There's just one more quick thing I want us to see in this passage before we finish today. Um, look at verse 22 again with me. <clears throat> We're talking about the rich young ruler, it says, Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. <clears throat> Excuse me. This word here for sorrowful, the same word is used in another spot in the New Testament, in the Gospels even. It's used in Matthew 26, 37. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you. It's this. Then Jesus went away, Jesus went with him to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there to pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to feel sorrowful and troubled. It's the same word used for the rich young ruler. He went away sorrowful. Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, sorrowful. Because you see, actually, in some ways, Jesus is not that different from the rich young ruler. Jesus is young, right? He's 33 when he's in the garden. He's rich. His, his wealth doesn't look like the rich young ruler's. His wealth is, is spiritual treasure, spiritual blessings in heaven. Um, all the blessings of heaven Jesus owns. And he's a ruler, right? Uh, Jesus is a rich young ruler. And the father says to Jesus, Jesus, take all that you have and give it to these poor sinners. Take your massive inheritance of heavenly blessings, of heavenly treasure, and share it with these poor sinners. And Jesus is sorrowful, not because he's selfish, not because he doesn't want to do it. Jesus is sorrowful because he knows how much it's going to cost him. He's sorrowful because it's going to mean he has to endure the worst spiritual torment that this world has ever seen. He's sorrowful because he knows he'll have to be temporarily separated from his father. Yet, what does Jesus say? My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. What the rich young ruler couldn't do, what you and I couldn't do, Jesus has done. And Jesus has given everything for you and for me. Don't insult him by trusting in yourself. Let, let all of us, let's not insult him by trusting in our own strength, in our own ability, in our own means. Let's cry out to him for help. Trust in him. Rest in him. Give Jesus your heart. He won't be satisfied with anything less. You know, I've spent about 30 minutes here uh, saying a lot of things when uh, a hymn writer can sum it up in about uh, two verses. Um, and so the, verse, the song we just sang a moment ago, Not What My Hands Have Done, I just want to close reading a couple of verses from that that really perfectly sum up um, this passage and, and what we've um, been talking about today. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Your voice alone, O Lord, can speak to me of grace. Your power alone, O Son of God, can all my sin erase. No other work but yours, no other blood will do. No strength but that which is divine can bear me safely through. Amen. Let's look to God in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we every day struggle with the, the temptation to, to put our trust and our faith in ourselves. And Lord, we, we 
end up either prideful or in despair. Father, as we start this new year, help us to trust in you. Help us to look to you above all else. Help us to love you more than anything else in our lives. We know we cannot do this without your help, without your grace, without your strength. And so we ask this today in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand for our closing hymn.